Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The agency in charge of protecting thousands of federal facilities across the country continues to face steep staff shortages. But the Federal Protective Service hopes retention incentives will help keep employees around long enough while they bring in some new recruits. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. And give us the latest on staffing shortages at FPS. Federal Protective Service is in charge of protecting about 9,500 federal facilities across the country. Um, And the agency continues to face recruiting and retention challenges here. This is not a new story necessarily for FPS. We saw these issues last year, and they've only uh, really grown since then. FPS is authorized at a total of 1,600 uh, positions, but Chris Klein, the director of FPS, says one out of every four authorized positions is vacant. We are short-staffed right now, but we're still getting our mission done. We're using overtime dollars right now because we have officers staying later to protect our facilities. And it remains a challenge for us. And just a quick question, if there are 1,600 billets and 9,500 facilities, they must use a lot of contractor help. That's right. They have about 17,000 in contractor help. These are the folks who are actually, you know, outside of a facility checking people in and things like that. But the agency itself employs the law enforcement officers that are really that first line of defense when there is an incident. And these staff shortages are having an effect on the employees and on the agency? That's right. Uh, You know, it comes amid a persistent increase in threats to federal employees and facilities. Klein uh, noted in that testimony before the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee last week that there's been an increase in incidents at federal properties, arson, burglary, robbery, larceny, motor vehicle thefts, assault on government employees, and threats to harm government employees. We heard Klein earlier mention FPS officers are having to work overtime, staying staying later on the job. He says that's having an effect on morale at the agency, and and things aren't really going to slow down. Uh, FPS will continue to be busy in 2024, securing, for example, high-profile federal trials. There's the conventions for both major political parties the presidential election itself, and then in January 2024, the inauguration. Or, I'm sorry. And in January of 2025, the inauguration. So things are going to be busy over these next 14 months. Yeah, so they're looking long-term. Do they have a long-term plan for getting those officers and agents in and having them stick around? Well, first they want to offer these retention incentives starting in this next pay period to keep people in place if they were considering leaving the agency in the first place. And then the longer-term plan is to, yes, bring in more young recruits. But first they have to get them trained. Uh, You know, Klein says FPS is working with the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center to fill more classes with FPS candidates over the next year. That kind of increases the pipeline. Uh, They lose about 5% of recruits through FLETC training, but 80% of candidates make it through training and then last at least one year at FPS. So that's one way that they can really increase their retention. And the service is really focused on recruiting younger people. Uh, Klein mentioned that in particular during the hearing. We need a new focus on those young and vibrant recent college graduates that have a different perspective on how to do things than old people like me. Uh, So we are competing for the same person that every other law enforcement agency is competing, city, county, state, and federal. We're all competing for that young, vibrant person to become part of our agency. And they're also competing with a lot of the cities that are offering hiring bonuses for police officers because there's just not enough to go around. There's a lot of demand right now for law enforcement officers across different sectors, yeah. Now, the White House just came out with a new executive order on federal facility security. I think a 
FBI agent was carjacked recently in Washington, D.C., as a matter of fact. What's in that executive order that we need to know about? Yeah, this executive order focuses on something called the Interagency Security Committee. It's been around since the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, uh, really to coordinate federal facility security across different agencies, so ensuring agencies have strong countermeasures in place at their facilities. This executive order signed uh, last week would drive some reforms to how agencies actually have to work with the Interagency Security Committee. Uh, They would have to name an employee that would be responsible for implementing uh, recommendations from agencies like the Federal Protective Service when they say, hey, you need this countermeasure in place. That's coming about because, as the Government Accountability Office reports, agencies did not implement most of the 32,000 countermeasures FPS recommended over the last six years. There's a lot of these countermeasures going unimplemented, and the White House is trying to kind of shore up that oversight at the Interagency Security Committee. And why exactly are agencies not doing what they're recommended to do? GAO reports that agencies face, you know, first and foremost, cost challenges when determining whether to act on an FPS recommendation. A lot of these federal buildings are multi-tenant facilities, multi-agencies, and they have to sort out who's going to pay for what, and that's never an easy conversation. Uh, GAO also reports that a building's age or space limitations could impede some of these countermeasures, things like security cameras. David Maroney, acting director in GAO's physical physical infrastructure team. Spoke a little bit more about why agencies might not even be responding, though, to some of these recommendations. Reluctance sometimes to accept risk of not implementing recommendations they choose not to implement. They don't want to formally note that. And then at times, uh, communication issues uh, among the committees. This is a collateral duty for the officials on these committees, and sometimes they do not have as much expertise. uh, And so responding to the recommendations can not be as high of a priority as it should be. Yeah, so this is all happening in a context of cities where crime is on the rise, carjackings are on the rise, violent types of assaults seem to be on the rise in a lot of cities, shootings. So it seems like kind of an important priority here for the FPS to get its officers in place and for agencies to get on the stick with respect to their own buildings. Yeah, it's it's uh, really an issue across the board. You look at crime in cities, you also look at threats to specifically government employees and government agencies are, have also been on the rise in recent years. And so FPS is supposed to be there to prevent those. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? 
And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is 
what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're Thank uh, you. having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.